When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello everybody! Welcome back to New Books Network. Today I will—I mean, I'm Shuan. Today I feel very happy to invite Dr. Xinfan to discuss his newest book, World History and the National Identity in China. The first thing I want to do is just invite Dr. Fan to introduce himself to us. Oh, thank you very much for your invitation, Shu uh, Shu Wan. Um, I this is Xinfan uh, speaking, Dr. Xinfan. Uh, I'm a historian of 20th century China. Uh, I do world history, I do Chinese history, uh, but I also, also uh, do a little reception studies. Um, in the past, I uh, co-edited a book on the receptions of Greek and Roman antiquity in East Asia. And today uh, we're going to talk about uh, my uh, mon- uh, monograph, World History and National Identity in China. Uh, as a historian, I grew up in China. I was educated in the United States, in Germany, now I'm working um, in the United Kingdom. I'm a teaching associate at um, in the in the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Cambridge University, but I'm also a fellow and the director of studies at Lucy Cavendish College. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, so next question for next question, I want to ask you the reason why you are interested in the research project of the relationship between national identity and world history in China. Thank you very much for the uh, the question. This is a great question because um, when I was writing the book, um, it's really difficult to, to uh, get myself involved into the conversation right in the book. But this is this is a great opportunity for me to share uh, some of my personal experience. The reason why I was doing this project, <laughs> there are a couple of reasons. I think fundamentally this goes back to the issue of identity. Um, I was educated in China, and when I was uh, studying in China, my major is world history. And in China, studying world history, sometimes uh, um, there was a little um, confusion in terms of what I was doing. Because on the one hand, I'm doing a study of the world. On the other hand, I'm Chinese. So what does world history mean to myself, to the people in China? And especially uh, when I was uh, doing the undergraduate training, um, and in the same way at the graduate school, there's always this sort of feeling that in China, world history does not include China. So in other words, for some reason, it seems that the world history in China becomes <laughs> a foreign history. Um, 
And that's the uh, the fundamental question uh, that pushed me uh, to start this project. That is, I want to understand why, why world history becomes foreign history in this country. And of course, uh, while I was doing this project, then uh, this is not just a question of historiography, right? This is not just a question about the division between uh, uh, world historical studies and Chinese historical studies. It is more than history. It is uh, um, fundamentally, this is a question, a critical question to the identity formation process in China, and I would argue over the course of the 20th century. So while I was doing this um, this, this topic about uh, historiography, uh, world history in China, gradually I just realized that I had to talk about uh, bigger issues, like social, cultural, and the political issues uh, that uh, created the uh, context for the rise of world history in China and the process within which world history became foreign history in China. So in the beginning, it was a personal project, but then uh, gradually it became a project that goes beyond historiography. Uh, it becomes a question, uh, an inquiry into the collective identity formation process in China in the country. Thank you so much for your answer again. So now let's turn to your book. So my first question is re, um, regards your this first chapter of the book. Um, I want to invite you to share your thoughts about what historical writing that emerged in China in the early 20th century after the rise of printed capitalism as an attempt to address concern about global space. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, this book uh, is, um, I guess, fundamentally... It is a book about the formation of world historical discipline in China. So in other words, it's a history of a discipline. And that discipline is called world history. But then uh, uh, while I was doing that, uh, I was struggling with the beginning of this project. So where should I start? And of course, uh, you can see the first chapter talks about uh, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. And in that chapter, I was dealing with the origins of world historical studies in China. And it's a difficult question because if we think about world history, in a way, world history always existed in China. If we go back to Sima Qian, right, the grand uh, historian, and he already touched on some world historical issues. And there are some really respectful uh, comparative studies between uh, world historical traditions in ancient China and in other parts of the world. So the origin is a very challenging issue. But then uh, in this project, um, on the one hand, I'm dealing with the historiographical issue of world history. But on the other hand, I'm also dealing with the social um, issue, the a question of the, uh, the the socialized production of knowledge. So in that case, I'm also dealing with the history of uh, the world history discipline. And in that case, I guess uh, uh, the first chapter um, is the right beginning for the rise of world historical discipline, which I argue uh, it started in the beginning of the 20th century and perhaps by the end of the 19th century. So that's something uh, I... I, I was trying to do in this project. That is, I would like to pinpoint to the beginning of world 
history discipline in China. And of course, in that process, uh, as you rightly, uh, rightfully mentioned, that uh, um, the rise of print capitalism had a lot to do with the rise of the academic discipline of world history in China. So there are a couple of things I would like to say. One is um, uh, when we're dealing with the issue of world history in the beginning of the 20th century China, there was this ambiguous and complicated uh, transformation from the traditional historical thinking into so-called modern historiography. So in other words, the early uh, individuals who were trying to write about the world history, so-called world history in China at that time, they were dealing with the heritage of Neo-Confucianism. Uh, so in other words, to put it simple, that is, how can you write a world history that is similar to world history in other parts of the world in the 20th century, at the same time, you are also dealing with the uh, the legacy of traditional historiography. So in other words, I'm, I'm trying to reconcile the tension between tradition and the modernity in the first chapter. Um, so the rise of a print capitalism, I would argue, is a signature moment for the rise of a modern sense of world history in China. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm a, you can see I'm a struggling a little bit, right, dealing with the legacy issue. So the... And, and that's the reason I'm looking at the people who were writing about uh, uh, world history at the moment in China. They were not professional historians yet. Um, they were gentry scholars of the time. And they received the Confucian education. Um, and in fact, they were while they were writing about the world, they did not give up on Confucian tradition. And they were trying to find a way to reconcile the tension between tradition and modernity, so much so they would use uh, Confucianism as the uh, sort of ideological foundation, right, for them to talk about things in the world. So it's a complicated process. Um, and in this process, I'm not giving up on the influence of uh, traditional Chinese historiography. I'm not giving up on the influence of Neo-Confucianism. But at the same time, I would also like to acknowledge the impact of the so-called modern world. And uh, uh, specifically is what you mentioned, the rise of print capitalism. Um, let me just uh, bring up another perspective on this. That is, um, in the, uh, by, the, uh, by, by the turn of the 20th century, it was a time of a fundamental change in terms of the education system in China. The uh, civil examination system was about to be abolished. In fact, it was abolished in 1905. And uh, by doing so, because of that, right, so the, 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 the meaning of world history or history education had transformed. Um, and uh, the old way of writing history Became sort of obsolete, and then the a new in, in, so the the in, the gentry scholar at the time were they were trying to come up with something new and to talk about world history uh, in the form of textbooks, and they wrote world history because they wanted to publish uh, this world history 
books as textbooks. And the rise of textbooks were driven by the rise of print capitalism. I'm sorry, a little bit complicated here, but uh, I'm dealing with a very complicated issue. <laughs> Thank you so much for your answer. So my next question, for my next question, I want to invite you to talk about how the Chinese world history's pursuit of intellectual autonomy was interrupted by the war with Japan. Oh yeah, that that is a very important question. Um, so, as I mentioned, uh, the first chapter of this book talks about uh, this complicated origin of world historical writings at the turn of the twentieth century in China, and the second chapter, um, in that chapter, I'm dealing with the issue of world historical education in the Republican period in China. Uh, and pretty much we're looking at the early 10s all the way to 1949. And you're right, one dominant theme for that chapter is the rise and the fall of the pursuit of intellectual autonomy. But I would like to argue that the pursuit of intellectual autonomy, it is not just a simple idea or simple performance by Chinese intellectuals as individual self. Rather, it is something that is um, tied up to the bigger changes in Chinese society. And that is uh, the rise of professional education and the professional research of history. So in other words, we're really dealing with the process of professionalization of historical study and historical education in the Republican period in China. And within that bigger picture, I would argue, um, so for the process of professionalization, it is a social process, right? You can see uh, in the past, historians, a lot of people, they were gentry scholars. I mean, they, 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 they wrote about history, but they also wrote many other things. Uh, in a way, their, their knowledge is comprehensive, at least what they were trying to do, right? They were doing philosophy, they were doing literature, they were doing history. But uh, by the time of the 1910s, especially 1916, when uh, Cai Yuanpei returned to, uh, to, to become chancellor of, at the Peking University, the, 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 the education system in China gradually transformed into one so-called modern. So the rise of a modern education system. Under the, under the bigger changes, right, this sort of sociological changes, um, historians became professionals. They became academic professionals. And because of that, they had this very clear goal that they, what they were doing was scientific. Right. So as a historian, they were thinking, right, what I'm doing is a scientific pursuit. In other words, what I'm trying to do is real knowledge, pure knowledge. It has nothing to do with other parts of the world. You know, it's not related to politics. It is not related to economy. It's just what I'm trying to do, right? Pure scholarship. In fact, I'll give you one example, right? A historian Gu Jiegang. Uh, who was a big name uh, in the 19, uh, in the Republican period in China. And he once wrote in his diary saying, well, today 
uh, someone else told me that they overheard a conversation on the bus. So like they read them a conversation. In that conversation, um, person A said to person B, I do not like Gu Jiegang because Gu Jiegang said, Gu Jiegang said, right? I, I can write history under the dragon fly. So in other words, I can write history in the Qing Dynasty. And Gu Jiegang also said, I can write history under the warlord rule. So in the military control, I'm still writing history. And I'm writing history the same way as right, so in the warlord time or in the um, in the in the royal dynasty, right? I'm writing history the same way. And he, this person A said, "This is the reason I don't like Gu Jiegang because you know he 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 thinks that what he does has nothing to do with the political changes." And the person B said, "Well, yeah, I agree. This is the reason why Lu Xun did uh, Lu Xun doesn't like him, right?" And Gu Jiegang wrote in the diary said, "Well, this I didn't say." Any of this. So this conversation is really just rumor based on rumors. But at the same time, I could have said that. In other words, indeed, this is my opinion, right? What I'm trying to do is to build a scholarly society in China, Xue Shu Shehui. And that scholarly society is based on the pure pursuit of knowledge, has nothing to do with politics. Um, and that reflects the uh, the zeitgeist of the entire generation in the 1910s and 1920s. But then, as you rightly point uh, right, rightly point out, that the things start to change, because even like people like Gu Jiegang, right, they were trying to pursue intellectual autonomy, they were trying to pursue pure knowledge, pure scholarship. However, the social and the political environment in China had such profound impact on their individual um, existence. So much so that Gu Jiegang had to run away when the Japanese took over Beijing. Because he well, he, he believed that his name was on, on the blacklist of the Japanese army. So he had to run away. And in fact, he himself uh, would, would argue that after what happened in China in 1937, he would argue, well, now I'm not going to pursue pure knowledge. Now I'm going to pursue history as a weapon, as a weapon to shape national identity in China. So this is a story about Gu Jiegang, but this is also a shared experience of the entire generation of historians in China in the Republican period, right, from the 19th decade to the Japanese invasion of China. And in this chapter, I'm specifically I'm dealing with historian Lei Haizong. And in the 1920s, um, 1930s, he was a very influential figure in world history education. He served as chair of the history department at Tsinghua University, which is one of the most influential universities in China back then and in China even today. Um, so he served as chair of the history uh, department at Tsinghua University. And he's also a world historian. He teaches uh, uh, world history and the general history of the world, but he also teaches uh, a general history of China. As a chair of the history department, um, he in the 1930s, he wrote, well, 
as like Chinese universities um, provide too much education on world history, right? Our students have to take so many courses on world history, more than the uh, more than those people in Harvard, right? In 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 the elite universities in in, in the United States. So in a way, he's trying to think right the the, the development of world history as a, a discipline. And he's sharing the responsibility as a scholar, shaping the national curriculum, right? Shaping the conversation about history education. That's 1930s. But by the time of 1940s, when the Japanese invaded China, when he had to run away from Beijing, right, join the others in uh, Kunming uh, to join the uh, Southwest Associated University, where the Japanese uh, airplanes were bombing, right, Kunming all the time. By the time, by that time, right, his idea about the world history had already changed, had already changed. Now he would argue, well, world history is important too for us to consolidate national identity in the time of war. And they would argue China was weak because China did not have a consolidated identity. And as historians, they would argue, they would use history as a weapon to help the nation to become even more unified to mobilize uh, individuals, to uh, create a strong collective voice, right? And uh, they would uh, use world history as a weapon to shape up, shake up national spirit. Right? So that's what I'm trying to argue in the second chapter of the book. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So now let's turn to the third chapter. For this one, I want to invite you to discuss the paradox facing world history and Lin Zhizun and Tong Shuye as they try to negotiate this emerging and complex academic and political environment. Thank you very much. Um, the this book follows a cr- cr- chronological order. Uh, the first chapter talks about the. Uh, the turn of the 20th century. In other words, the majority conversation goes to late Qing. Um, and the second chapter uh, covers the Republican period. And the third chapter talks about what happened to uh, world historians in the early People's Republic of China, in other words, 1950s. Um, and here, uh, this I have two chapters. Chapter four deals. Uh, chapter three, sorry. Chapter chapter three deals with uh, the collective biography. What happened to people who were doing world history in China in the nineteen fifties, and then the next chapter, chapter four, deals with the historiography. That is what they wrote about in terms of world history and what they were debating about. So what is the key issue, right? What is the key issue in the conversation? And that conversation eventually shaped the foundation of world historical studies in China. So uh, these two chapters are, are in a way both deal with uh, 1950s. And specifically for this chapter, uh, chapter three, I'm dealing with the issue of uh, individual agency, individual choice. Because world history as I wrote, and as as you have already mentioned, um, started with this effort to pursue pure knowledge in the 1920s, right? So it 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 has its legacy, 
right? Historians wanted to pursue pure scholarship. But by the 1950s, the Communist Party took over China. And the, the party's understanding of historiography is different from uh, these intellectuals in the 1920s in China. The party clearly believed, or maybe still believes, that history is a tool, is a tool to shape the national identity, but it is also a tool to mobilize the masses. And that's the reason the party had a clear agenda to transform world history as a discipline in the country. In other words, the party wanted to reform the individuals who were doing world historical education, world historical research in China for the purpose of the construction of a, a socialist state. And the key goal is the indoctrination of Marxist ideology. So this is the bigger picture. And then within that big picture, what happens, what happened to those individuals? And in that chapter, I'm dealing with four individuals and they came from different origins and they had a different ideological um, identifications. Some of them were more sympathetic with the communist movement before the revolution, and some of them were more um, hesitant to embrace socialist ideas. So we're looking at the tension and the different trajectories of these world, so-called world historians in China. Specifically, as you mentioned, I'm dealing with two important individuals. One is uh, Lin Zhichun, who nowadays is considered the founding father of ancient world historical studies in China. And Tong Shuyue uh, is the other person you mentioned who is uh, who was trained by Gu Jiegang um, and uh, started uh, his work as a historian of ancient China. But by the time of 1950s, he was um, converted into an uh, ancient world historian. So here, you see, I'm introducing a new word, ancient world history. So in other words, what, when I'm dealing with world history in China, so this is a very big field, right? Today in China, at least uh, one third, maybe uh, one half of historians belong to world history. This is a very big field. It's a massive uh, amount of data. If someone wants to write uh, a, a history of a world history discipline in China. So this is a really big field. And this is the reason... Um, I, I have this strategy when I'm writing the book, that is I choose a small division, a small a group of people who are doing so-called ancient world history in China, And specifically, right, by definition, world ancient world history deals with anything before the arrival of the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages from the global perspective. So in other words, these people were studying ancient antiquity in the West as well as in the East. And within this field, these two individuals, Tong Shuye and Lin Zhichun, uh, became very interesting. Both of them studied the Chinese history before the Communist Revolution. And both of them were converted into world historians after the Communist takeover. 
and both of them were sympathetic with this sort of transformation. And here I see many reasons. And maybe they were truly interested in world history. But at the same time, there were also opportunities for them to take advantage of, right? Because ancient world history by the 1950s was relatively a new field. And the state really supported the development of the field. So a lot of resources would be uh, uh, pouring into this new field and they would take the opportunity to do it. So they uh, found opportunities themselves. But by doing so, I would argue they gradually became generally interested in uh, uh, ancient world history. So that's the story we're looking at, right? Not only we're looking at the people who were very hesitant about this sort of socialist transformation, but also I'm actually looking at the people who were quite uh, active and positive about this transformation. And that's the biography, collective biography we're looking at about these two individuals. We thank you so much for your answer again. So my last question is about chapter four of your book. For this one, I want to invite you to discuss the reason why many Chinese historians choose to dismiss the universalism exposed by Chinese world history as a false and uh, sorry analogy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the uh, so the 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 next chapter uh, still deals with nineteen fifties. And here the idea is um, 1950s was a critical moment for the rise of world history as a discipline in China. There are many reasons for that. And one of the important reasons is the restructuring of China's higher education system according to the Soviet model. So in in other words, um, the whole world history discipline in China today is still carrying on the legacy from the socialist period. And that legacy actually was modeled on the Soviet Union. Uh, World history, in a way, in China is very similar to the socialist legacy um, from the Soviet Union. And But that process is a political, social process. Um, But then uh, I would argue this social and political process transformation would also have impact on people's understanding of ideas, knowledge production. And that's the reason I'm dividing um, 1950s into two periods, two chapters. The first chapter, as I mentioned, um, deals with the people what happened to the people, the collective biography of the people. Um, the second left, uh, chapter, that's chapter four, deals with what happened to the ideas, to the knowledge production process. And there are two things I, I, I was trying to write about. The second thing is your question, but uh, allow me to introduce the first thing first. Right, there are two things. The first thing is, under the socialist uh, um, regime, was there good history, right? So the so in, in China today and in many other places, 
um, a lot of people have this assumption that is historical work has to be undertaken um, through the process of autonomous knowledge production. So in other words, historians must be able to exercise their free will so that they can produce good history. And that is very much true. That is very much so. But then the question here is, what if historians, unfortunately, uh, are being placed in the time that they do not have the luxury to exercise free thinking? Are they going to write history? Are they going to write good history? Or are they going to write bad history? And of course, a lot of people will will say, well, the historical writing in that period is is really ideological, right? Some people would argue world historical writing in the 1950s um, serves as a handmaiden of political ideology. In a way, it is true. But at the same time, what I'm trying to look at in this period is the dynamics. That is, on the one hand, there is ideological control. On the other hand, historians, they're still people. By nature, they would like to pursue uh, the exercise of free thinking, even under difficult times. And that is what we're looking at at the community of world historians in China. That is, they, the, the individuals, they were still trying to look for meaningful conversation despite all the ideological concerns. And eventually, they found a way to do it. That is, to discuss the question of Asia, the question of Asia, Asiatic mode of production, um, Asiatic mode of production. It's a very, very bizarre concept uh, coming from a socialist and Marxist historiography. And we don't have time uh, to go too much into this. But the, the fundamental question here is whether or not China, as an a, a Asian country, had a unique trajectory of historical development. And this, they chose this question maybe subconsciously, but uh, uh, by applying some ideas from post-colonial studies, I would argue um, the question about Asia, the issue of the relationship between European history and Asian history is an ambiguous point in Marxist historiography. Karl Marx did not really clearly explain, explain everything, and Stalin did not really have a concrete answers for all these ideological debates regarding the relationship between the East and the West. And because the ideological uh, legacy in this area, the relation between the East and the West, is so weak, so ambiguous, that allows people, the historians in China, even under uh, the tight control for uh, Marxist ideology, they could, do, could still exercise a little bit of free thinking. And uh, in this case, in this chapter, I'm dealing with the debate about whether or not China in the past had a unique tra trajectory of historical 
development. So this is the first uh, first first part, right? The second part goes back to your uh, important question. That is, what happens to that community? This community of world historians, they were trying to pursue this sort of uh, interesting debate regarding the nature of uh, uh, the relationship between the ancient East and the ancient West, China and Asia and Europe, right? They were trying to have that sort of summer conversation. But what happened to the reception of this sort of a dialogue and conversation? And I would argue this is really the... Um, the, the legacy or the, the baggage that they are carrying. That is, for a lot of historians outside of field of world history, like the Chinese historians or historians who, who, who were studying ancient China or modern China, right? these people would be very hesitant to accept a group of scholars who were historians because the state wanted them to be so, right? So in that case, the world historians became outsiders to the historians community in China. But under the tide of ideological control, historians, especially Chinese historians, or historians who were studying China, right? They would be very hesitant to directly challenge world history. And they would be very hesitant to challenge what the world historian in China uh, they were trying to do was not historical, right? So they would be very difficult because the consequences will be there, right? So that's the reason they cannot directly say, you guys are not doing good history. But a, a way to get around to this is they could argue, well, you're doing great work, but it is not relevant to China. So in other words, in that intricate moment of the 1950s, in the, under the intensified tension between uh, history and ideology, some historians adopted the discourse of cultural difference as a way to define or define right, their intellectual autonomy by rejecting world history. Their secret agenda, or maybe a hidden agenda, would be if we follow the line of thought, right? If world history does not apply to China, how about Marxism as foreign ideas? Would that be able to apply to China? So that sort of conversation, they can they cannot say that a lot, and they cannot say Marxism is not relevant to China, but they can at least make this argument: Chinese history is so unique that the world historical perspectives do not necessarily apply to our country. So in the moment of the tension between ideological uh, uh, concerns and historical pursuits, um, this idea of nationalism actually became sort of a defensive mechanism that allows Chinese historians to at least define intellectual autonomy. So this is a little bit complicated arguing here, but I hope I can uh, explain that, uh, that relatively clear to you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for your answer again. So now let's turn to chapter five. For this chapter, my question is that I want to invite you to talk about your argument that with I mean, Chairman Mao's death, world historical study in China witnessed a new wave a professionalization within the Marxist ideological framework. 
Yeah, this is the um uh, this is the last chapter of the book, and in that chapter, I'm dealing with what happened to uh world history and the world historians after the death of Mao. Um, and in that chapter, I'm trying to argue um a bigger argument that is um a little bit beyond world history is um 1980s was really a time of dynamics, creativity. And interesting conversations. Um, in a way, I feel on the one hand, the historians in China were struggling with the remaining influence of ideological control directly from historical materialism and Marxism state ideology. On the other hand, the gradual lifting of uh, censorship. And the ideological control in the 1980s, especially in the early 1980s, uh, uh, much uh, a little much so by the 1988-89, right? That time, they were able to exercise f- uh, relatively interesting ideas, and uh, this is the time, um, in a way, um, historical study has now become highly. Specialize. This is a time culture becomes a、uh, um, became the 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 theme of the conversation among intellectuals. So everybody was talking about、uh, culture. Everybody was talking about big ideas. Everybody was talking about、uh, the general dynamics of world historical changes. So in that case, it became a interesting. Moment for people to speak aloud, people from different perspectives, different positions, and different approaches,、uh, to speak aloud about world historical issues. So this is very interesting, and in that process, we can observe a slow but a steady、um, change in world historical writing in China. That is, the historians in China, especially world historians. They were very cautiously challenging the ideological framework that was defined by historical materialism, and the challenge was gradual, slow but steady. So in the beginning, they were choosing a, se- several key issues that were already discussed in the nineteen fifties. So, for example. The question of the Asiatic mode of production, as I talked about, right in in the previous chapter, but gradually they would、uh, move right these issues, and gradually trans transform the conversation into louder critique or criticism of、uh, the ideological framework of historical materials. So in the beginning, it was old topic, and you can say it's old bottle. But then gradually, it started pour in new wine, right? The new ideas started to pour in, and that is the process we're looking at, right? The gradual lifting of ideological control, and the slow but steady challenge of historical materialism, and in that process,、uh, we can observe lots and lots of、uh, dynamic uh, uh, conversation debates. So that's what I'm writing about in this chapter. Thank you so much again. So, for the last question today, I want to invite you to summarize the emergence of nationalism among Chinese world history in the late twentieth century. 
thank you very much. Um, so this is something um, I wrote a little bit in the beginning, and I also uh, wrote a little bit by the end of the book. The question here is um, um, nationalism is an important uh, um, topic for this book. Um, in a way, I would say this is an embedded theme for this book. But what I'm trying to do in this book is I'm trying to look at the other side of nationalism. In other words, I'm looking at the uh, uh, the debate, the polemic of nationalism. I'm looking at the people who are trying to challenge nationalism in China, who are trying to write history uh, from an alternative perspective to nationalism. Right, I'm writing about world historians, and fundamentally, these world historians in China are not writing Chinese history. So they have to find a way to reconcile their global outlook and uh, national uh, identification. Right. So, in in many ways, in this book, right, we have we have lots and lots of examples where in which people were challenging or trying to find alternative narratives to nationalistic and national history. But by the end, uh, it seems that there is this revival, return, or resurgence of nationalism, especially among academic uh, uh, communities in China. And why so? That's something I have been thinking about a little bit in the concluding chapter. That is... In a way, the field of world historical studies, in a way, in the past few decades, or maybe a hundred years also, there were always some dominant conversations, dominant themes that framed conversations. So, for example, uh, by the end of the 20th, 19th century, the beginning of 20th century, a major issue is how do you deal with the legacy of Confucianism? And in the 1920s, 1930s, right, it is really about the issue of teaching and how does teaching of world history could contribute to China's entering the world, right? So China's entry into the world system. And 1950s is really about, you know, how do we understand Chinese revolution as a part of a global revolution? Um, and so in other words, in, in the previous periods, we can see the scholars oftentimes, despite they were doing many different things, for the fact they were doing many different things, right? Still, there's a central framework of conversation. But by the 1990s, this framework seems to disappear. Um, and maybe it's a good thing because we can see scholars in China became more and more specialized, professionalized. A lot of world historians in China now, they have foreign degrees and they studied with uh, world-leading scholars and they were able to command languages, primary sources, so they are doing excellent work, for sure. But then, somehow, the conversation, the dominant theme that unified different approaches, right? Uh, the question that shapes the discipline disappear. And because of the experience of the major or fundamental questions in the field, 
scholars' research became a more and more uh, fragmented. And in that process, uh, people we can observe, right? It seems that the nationalism, cultural nationalism, gradually found a way to sneak back in into the field of uh, world historical studies. And of course, uh, this is a uh, ongoing project, right? So this is um, one book is far from enough solving all the questions, concerns, and and, and summarizing all the debates and rethinking the legacies of world historical studies in the past. But that's at least what I'm trying to do at this moment. So in other words, what I'm trying to write about world history and the national identity is an issue that we're still dealing with. And in fact, the rise of nationalism in China today is a contingent issue, right? It is still in the process of change. And hopefully, um, um, by doing this project and by reading this book, you have a better understanding of what is the bigger context, right, for the rise of uh, academic nationalism in China. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay, thank you so much again for your answers. I mean, for all your answers to my questions. So at the end of our episode, I want to talk to my audience, to our audience. So as a Chinese historian, I think Dr. Fan's newest book, World History and National Identity in China, is one of the best, I mean, best book uh, of the (laughs) subjects. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm very appreciate that. And uh, I want to say, uh, if anybody was interested in either the history, geography of world history, in the history, modern Chinese history, you may consider buy a copy of Dr. Fan's newest book, World History and the National Identity in China. So thank you, thanks for you listening to our episode today. Thank you. Thank you.